Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 9 through 25. And this is uh, the part of Exodus where the people of Israel have come now to Mount Sinai. And we have some instructions going on here. Uh, before I read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you've given to us. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would um, help us to be those with ears to hear. And help us to hear your word. Help us uh, not to let it go in one ear and out the other. God, that it would go uh, to our minds and to our hearts. God, that we would uh, continue to seek you and to, um, to seek to follow you in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Turning then to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysenia, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. 
The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. We have been going through the the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been looking at uh, what it means to uh, actually seek to... uh, examine ourselves, to look at the ways in which we have been influenced by the culture. We looked first, going back a couple of years, we looked all the way through the book of Genesis and how God had created the world and created it good, but that things had gone off track pretty quickly with the sin of Adam and Eve and then everything following. And there'd been this downward spiral, but through it all, God had said, I'm going to do something. Then we went from there to the book of Revelation, and we looked at how God has revealed what he has done in Jesus, to the church, that in Jesus, he has already won the victory over sin and over death, and that uh, he is going to make all things new. And so uh, we see that in Genesis, what's happened from the beginning, we see in Revelation, uh, where everything is headed uh, at the end. And so now we're looking at 1 Corinthians as a, so how do we live now (laughs) in between uh, Jesus having come and won the victory, and yet Everything's not made right yet. So we live in a time where the whole world is still corrupted by sin and there's still death, and yet we know where things are headed. So how do we live? And go on to the next slide, Andrew. So in the Bible Project, uh, they have these videos that cover every book of the Bible, and this is the poster that you get at kind of the end of the uh, video on 1 Corinthians. And uh, they show that really what this whole letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth is about is how they are to see everything now in light of the gospel. So it's 1 Corinthians, seeing every part of life through the gospel. So they kind of depict the gospel as a pair of glasses that you put on. You see everything through the gospel. So how in the world uh, does that work? And this is where you get these different categories. Go on to the next one. 
So what we've been looking at is chapters 1 through 4, where uh, look at divisions in the church, and that was the problem that they were facing. This is the problem that everybody's having in Corinth in general. There's a lot of division, etc., and they are being influenced and actually living just like the rest of the culture. However, the gospel says we live differently. And so uh, responding uh, with the gospel, it says we have a reason uh, for unity, that the church is a community of people centered around Jesus, not around these other individual leaders, etc. Okay, so that's where we have been, and we've been looking at that a lot. Go ahead and hit it again. Might have to do it twice. There we go. Uh, and so now, I don't know if everybody looked ahead, and that's why we don't have any uh, younger kids here today, but we're, we're moving on. <laughs> And uh, the problem is sex. And we're going to actually look at this for a couple chapters here. Um, I'll be as delicate as I can, so it's okay for the kids to come back. But anyway, uh, and so this is where we're going uh, now as he turns to another topic. And the, but the same uh, way to approach the topic is what we see throughout the book, is you <laughs> define what the problem is, and then you apply the gospel. Okay, how is it that we see this then in light of Jesus? his life, his death, his resurrection. How do we then live differently uh, because of this? Okay, so go on from there, and we will go ahead and read, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a, little, that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. All right. So this is where uh, kind of turns the corner, and it seems like a pretty sharp turn uh, because uh, <clears throat> he has been making this case in the first four chapters for the unity we have in Christ. And then as soon as he turns from the topic of the unity we have in Christ, the very next thing we get is you got to kick somebody out. And we're like, oh, so maybe he wasn't serious about all that unity stuff. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely serious about all that unity stuff. That's why I was on it for like four chapters. And so there's something else uh, going on here. And what is going on here is uh, there's this idea 
of the freedom that we have in Christ, right? If you look at Galatians chapter 5, it actually starts by saying, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. All right, very good. For freedom that Christ has set us free. And I think that what was going on here in the church in Corinth is they had really taken that kind of thinking to heart, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But freedom was left somewhat undefined. So for them, freedom meant anything goes. We do whatever we want, right? And in fact, uh, the reason I say I think this is the case in Corinth is because in uh, chapter 6, verse 12, Paul quotes the church in Corinth as saying, I have the right to do anything, you say. He says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. He actually comes back to this again in chapter 10 where he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And so do you hear what's happening here? Is he's taking this saying that they have, oh, I have the right to do anything. We're free in Christ. Jesus died. He covered all of my sin. Therefore, I do whatever. It's all good now. And he's saying, no, that is not it at all. And so um, if you think back to Jesus and the woman that's caught in adultery, all right, there's this story where Jesus has brought this woman who's been caught in adultery, and um, the question is, what do, you, what do you do? The law says you stone her. Do you, do you go ahead and kill her for this sin or not? And this is the, uh, the story where Jesus says, you know, whoever, yeah, the law says stone her, so let's, let's do that. But here's the way we'll do it. The person who hasn't sinned at all, that's who gets to throw the first stone. And everybody goes, uh-uh, oh. <laughs> and they all, they all walk away. And then, uh, is there anyone <laughs> to condemn you? No. And Jesus, then, okay, I'm go and leave your life of sin. And so Jesus does not condemn her, but he, so he sets her free from the penalty of her sin, right? But he's also doing more than that and trying to free her from the life that led to this point. Does that make sense? It's a freedom that is not an anything goes. He doesn't say, go, you're free now. Keep doing this. It's all good. I don't know what those guys were talking about. (laughs) It's go and leave your life of sin. It's a freedom that is freedom not just from the penalty of sin, but the freedom of, uh, from sin itself. In fact, uh, the very next part of Galatians 5, should have just marked it, uh, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This yoke of slavery, uh, so you free in Christ, so we don't take all the laws of the Old Testament and put those back on everybody and say, well, you've got to do all that stuff. You've got to. You've got to do all that stuff. Says, no, that's the yoke of slavery. We don't do that. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. And yet, what does Jesus say? Does he ever mention a yoke? <laughs> he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, right? And so it's not that we take off this yoke of slavery and now we're just free to do whatever. It's you take off the one yoke, you put on another yoke. 
the one that actually leads the way of life. And this is the part where uh, the church in uh, Galatia had kind of missed it one way. They thought you have to wear this yoke of slavery. And then the church in Corinth had missed it the other way. It was like you throw off all the yokes. Neither one is right. (laughs) And so uh, what Paul is addressing here is the church that has thrown off all the yokes. Freedom in Christ. Free to do anything. I have the right to do anything. And, And Paul points out, yeah, you may have the right to do anything, but that does not make it right to do anything. And so he uses this example of what he has heard is going on there in the church and says uh, that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind the pagans, even the pagans don't tolerate. I mean, first, the church in Corinth was kind of known as, has similar reputation as what uh, Las Vegas has today. And I don't mean the Las Vegas of, you know, somebody who lives there and, uh, you know, has a kind of normal job and, the, you know, all the stuff that Vegas is known for is just kind of removed from it. I mean, the people that, like, Vegas is known for some things, right? <laughs> there is uh, an immorality that is uh, kind of celebrating as, yeah, that's what Vegas is about. And uh, there's a sexual immorality. There is a um, uh, <laughs> greed. There is lavishness. There is luxury. There's all, all these things that uh, Vegas is kind of known for, licentiousness. And um, this is what Corinth was. And he says, but here in in your church, can you imagine this? If you you were attending a church in Vegas and there were things going on in your church that the surrounding culture of Las Vegas is like, I don't know about that, that's a little too far. (laughs) Like, we wouldn't even do that. Like, whoa, that's what was going on in the church. That as bad off as the uh, Corinthians were, they weren't even, the pagan Corinthians, they weren't even doing what this church was tolerating, and not only tolerating, but actually being proud of. And so um, there are two issues that Paul points out here. One is the issue of how then to deal with this immorality. That's actually the easier uh, issue. So he says, you know, what, what needs to be done is... Uh, it, he, passes judgment on it that the man needs to be um, handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We need to talk about that line just a little bit because Paul is being very careful in his language as he's writing this uh, to uh, judge what is going on there, to apply this judgment, and yet to do so without condemnation. And it's really easy for us to miss that because we hear, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, and that sounds pretty much like condemnation, doesn't it? There are a couple things going on, though. One is uh, the destruction of the flesh. Uh, You may have a footnote in your Bible there that this is not talking about uh, that he would be killed uh, as though his body is destroyed, but that the sinful nature... That's what is referred to as flesh so often throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul. He talks about the flesh as that which we need to get rid of, and that doesn't mean our bodies, but it's our sinful nature. And so that's what needs to be destroyed in this guy. His bent towards sin needs to be destroyed. All right? And so then hand him over to Satan. That's how this is going to be accomplished, apparently. And um, you go, well, that sounds pretty bad, uh, but 
If you go back to Job chapter 2, verse 6, it says, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Same kind of language, actually. And uh, if you have read the book of Job or know how that goes, God is not handing Job over to Satan that Job would be destroyed. But he actually is going through this whole period, a uh, long period of, uh, of testing and suffering, and it actually brings him to a place of greater faith and dependence on God than he even was at the beginning. And, uh, and this is what Paul is referencing, and this is what he's uh, hoping for in the case of this guy. So the idea is not you find somebody who's done something wrong, and then you shun them forever. That's what they get. In fact, the, the whole idea is uh, that this is something that is supposed to wake him up, bring him back to his senses, like the prodigal son who goes away and then finds himself in a bad way and goes, what was I thinking? Returns to his senses and returns to his father. And so it's this kind of tough love that Paul is applying in this case. And uh, one of the ways that we see this is even when uh, Paul is saying, I'm not with you physically, but I am with you in spirit. Like he, he's not uh, removing himself from the situation and be like, you guys over there have this problem. He's like, no, 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 I'm with you. <laughs> we are together. This is an us problem. And then the way that he applies it, is in the hope, uh, it's not saying that the uh, man is unredeemable because of this bad thing he has done, but in fact sees that he is redeemable. And so he even says, kind of into that uh, verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The hope is for redemption. The hope is restoration. The hope is that he would wake up to his sin and repent and have life. And then he turns to the second issue. And the second issue, as I said, is actually the one that's more uh, (laughs) difficult to deal with. And uh, partly because it even hits them closer to home than the first issue. And uh, this is where it kind of reads like Romans chapter 1 and then chapter 2. Because in Romans chapter 1, you're reading through Romans chapter 1, and it's all this stuff about, hey, you know how those... uh, other people do all these terrible, terrible things. And everybody reading along is going, yeah, those other people do terrible, terrible things. And then Romans chapter 2, he's like, and you do the same things? And everybody's like, what? <laughs> How did I not see that coming? <laughs> but he com- it completely boomerangs back on him. And all the nodding and, yeah, they deserve uh, death comes back on them when it all, yeah, boomerangs back. And then it's, oh, yeah, I guess we deserve death. And so then chapter 3, there's no difference, Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. does the same thing here, where uh, he starts by talking about the sexual immorality of this guy, and it's like, yeah, that guy is the problem. And that guy is a problem, but that guy is not the problem as Paul sees it. What is it that he addresses as the problem? It's their pride and their boasting. So he says in uh, verse 2, you know, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather, blah, blah, blah. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? 
Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is what was supposed to be uh, happening in the life of the church, that there is a uh, purity that is to be a part of their life together. And this anything goes attitude, and not only that, but the, the pride they have, the way they puff themselves up of, yeah, we are so spiritually mature and superior to everyone else that even though the rest of the culture wouldn't uh, allow this guy to do this, in Christ, we're allowing him to do this. It's like, whoa, no, not only uh, is he doing what he shouldn't be doing, but now you have puffed yourselves up and you are looking down on everybody else because of this. That's terrible. <laughs> and, um, and then he gives the, uh, oh, I should mention that whole Passover thing and with the yeast. That's actually a part of the celebration of Passover every year. This goes back uh, even to it initially being um, formed, but he carries down even to today that people will uh, spend the days leading up to Passover getting rid of any yeast in the house. You get rid of all the yeast. Why do you get rid of all the yeast? As a sign and a symbol of sin in our lives and the way that uh, a little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. And uh, he's saying, you know, this, uh, the pride and the boasting that is in you is working through the whole church. And it is a sin uh, that is to be taken very seriously. And so what we're supposed to have instead is not, not the malice, not the wickedness, uh, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That this is what people uh, should be desiring. Sincerity and truth. What is uh, real. Then he goes into a pr- uh, practical application for moving forward. Okay, so then what do you do about people who claim to be Christians but don't care about following Jesus. What do you do with that? This would be those who want Jesus as their Savior, but who reject him as the Lord. In other words, this would be like the woman who's caught in adultery who says, hey, thanks for letting me not get stoned. Really appreciate that. I'm headed right back to all my adulterous ways. What do you do with that? And then she goes around telling people, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. He's my savior. Is he? (laughs) What do you do with a situation like that? And this is where Paul, uh, that's the part about the brothers and sisters, because he says, you know, I'm not saying that you need to uh, not associate with the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Why? Because in that case, you'd have to leave the world. (laughs) Who in the world doesn't fit in one of these categories, right? But he says you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. And this means brother or sister in Christ. This means someone who identifies as a Christian. And then says, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Just do not even eat with such people. 
uh, very likely referencing uh, sharing Lord's Supper together. The point is, uh, and this is where it gets a little tricky. The, the application, though, is not for us, and this is where our hearts are so easily deceived. We can hear this and go, okay, I think the point must be that we need to start all looking each other over with a really skeptical eye and some sort of like George Orwell big brother type where we're looking out become the uh, kind of the moral police and see if there's anybody, oh, you picked a handful of grain on the Sabbath day, you're harvesting. (laughs) It's not the application. We're not supposed to be doing that. But, (laughs) in fact, the point is like in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 28, where uh, Paul writes, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Everyone ought to examine their neighbor? No. (laughs) Everyone ought to examine themselves. We're to examine ourselves to see what yeast is infecting us that may be damaging to the whole church. The ways that we have said, oh, I like that Jesus is my Savior, but I know that he is said to do this, and eh, I'm not going to do that. I have freedom in Jesus. I've got freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to follow the things that he says. I've cast off the yoke of all this legalism, and I'm certainly not going to take on the yoke of following Jesus. Where have we done that? Where has our own arrogance blinded us and then led us into following our own way instead of following the Lord? We're good at this, by the way. We're really good at taking things that are um, clearly sinful and yet trying to spin it for ourselves in a way that, oh, no, no, this is very spiritual. No, I'm not spreading gossip. I'm sharing a prayer request. Now, it's, I'm not telling you this because it's gossip. I'm telling you it's because I am concerned. Sound familiar? No, it's not that I'm <laughs> angry. It's not that I'm uh, having, you know, sinning by being angry. It's just that uh, this is righteous anger, so it's different. In fact, it is good and right for me to feel this anger. If I didn't, God would be upset. <laughs> no, it's not about division. It's, I'm not being divisive. It's, it is my concern for purity. That's the idea here. No, it's not uh, greed. It is, I am uh, am greedy. I am just uh, desiring the blessing of God. No, it's not uh, that I am uh, involved in any sort of sexual immorality or immorality of any other sort. It's just that I'm free. Experiencing the freedom in Christ. You see the way we do this. We're very good at this. (laughs) 
We spin these things that we are supposed to reject. We're supposed to find that yeast in our lives and get rid of it. And instead, coddle it. And we see if there's a way that we can still keep it and still claim to be Christians. And ways that we can nurture (laughs) the sin in our lives and still claim the name of Jesus. We are supposed to, it says, judge those inside the church. And if we do that by eyeing our neighbors instead of ourselves, we're not doing it right. We eye ourselves first. It has to start with us. So when he says, expel the wicked person from among you, that is, uh, going right back to a lot of places in Deuteronomy, but it's also right back to this idea of getting rid of the yeast. And so uh, when you have someone who is saying, I refuse to repent, I refuse to follow Jesus, and I'm going to try to convince you (laughs) that my sin is good, then we say, I'm sorry. But we're going to have to part ways in the hopes that you'll be restored. But before we get there with somebody else, we've got to get there with ourselves. And if we find ourselves saying the same thing to ourselves, we have to say to the part of us, that fleshly, sinful nature part of us, that says, I don't want to repent. I want to follow my own way instead of following Jesus. We have to say, I'm sorry, but you've got to go. And so, as Paul says, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.